U.S. debt ceiling is an anachronistic throwback economic concept that requires Congress vote to approve the borrowing of money required to pay the government's debts each year. This would not be a burden if the government didn't spend more than it pulls in, because then the vote would be just, do we pay this bill? Yes, we do. But because the U.S. government has operated with a deficit of between $400 billion and $300 trillion every year for the past decade, that has meant a lot of votes to raise the debt ceiling, the total amount allowed to be spent on such debts by a lot of Congress people with different ideas about how to run things to ensure the U.S. government can pay these already accumulated debts. Those votes, again, allowing the debt ceiling to be increased a little or a lot on a semi-regular basis. This limit has been increased 78 times since 1960, and though the ceiling has been suspended and then re-established a few times during that period, it's been a pretty consistent element of U.S. political life for more than 60 years now. It has not, however, been a political football throughout that entire span of time. But in recent years, this obligation, and it is an obligation, not a choice, despite it sometimes being framed as something we can just choose not to do. That would be akin to deciding not to pay one's credit card bill, because you don't want to. This is money that has already been spent and debts that have already been accrued, not a determination to take on fresh debts. In recent years, that obligation has been sometimes leveraged as a cudgel by one party against the other, generally by the Republicans against the Democrats when there is a Democratic president in office. So when there is a Democrat in the White House, Republicans will say they want spending cuts and will threaten not to vote to raise this debt limit, which would cause the U.S. government to default, causing all sorts of major issues, ranging from a diminishment of our international credit rating to widespread mistrust in our capacity to govern and willingness to pay our debts to the collapse of social programs and other governmental services. And the worry that they'll actually go through with these threats usually gives the threatening Republican Party some kind of leverage in negotiations, allowing them to garner political benefits from the dominant in-office Democrats. This is a high-stakes, high-risk approach to negotiation and has at times been called blackmail, basically holding a gun to the government's head and demanding the president's party negotiate on terms favorable to the blackmailer. It is, of course, possible that Republicans truly do want to reduce spending, rather than this being mostly just a means of hurting their political opposition, though the fact that they do not engage in the same high-stakes, threat-laden negotiation when a Republican is in the White House suggests that this is mostly political brinksmanship, at least most of the time, by most of the players involved. And notably, some Republicans do not agree with this type of strategy and typically don't participate in it. That said, whatever the underlying purpose and intended gains, the struggle over the debt ceiling has raised the specter of government default over and over again, which in turn has caused tumult on the stock market and sparked worries that the U.S. could someday actually go off the rails, the game of chicken getting too real and leading to a situation in which neither side will back down because they've invested too much of their own reputation in these negotiations. Both sides stumbling into a situation they didn't actually want because they became too brazen and foolhardy, and to a certain degree, performative. 
In early May of 2023, the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, has recently warned that the U.S. will run out of money of the kind that is approved for spending for paying these debts, possibly as soon as June 1st. And that's after having already gone into a sort of emergency spending mode earlier. That has moved the issue forward and triggered a scramble in the White House to prepare some possible alternatives in case the Republican House decides to push the issue to dangerous levels because of the Biden administration's decision this time not to negotiate on the matter. Framing such negotiations as something like negotiating with terrorists, holding the country hostage, rather than earnest, balanced negotiations of the kind they would prefer and hope to incentivize. One option being considered is angling for a short-term increase in the borrowing limit that would allow for more time to find a longer-term compromise, but which would also lead to this exact same situation at some point in the near future if such a compromise is not negotiated. Another is taking a look at more experimental, less certain options, like minting a multi-trillion dollar coin that would then be deposited in the treasury or issuing premium bonds, though these options would be a somewhat bizarre and novel means of dealing with the debt ceiling and could come with political consequences, as they might read as government overreach or the printing of money during a period of high inflation to portions of the voting public, even if experts have issued repeated assurances that these methods, if used, would not be inflationary. What I'd like to talk about today is debt and a handful of facets of the global economic system that are facing debt crises, all of which add up to a potentially worrisome vulnerability to that larger system. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The topic of debt on the international scale, is a massive and convoluted one. So I'd like to home in on a half dozen specific types of debt that are currently worrying folks throughout the economic, governmental, and even diplomatic fields. A half dozen beyond the debt ceiling concept I talked about in the intro, that is. The first is probably the most familiar type of debt for most of us, consumer debt. In the United States, credit card balances increased by $61 billion in the fourth quarter of 2022 alone, upping the overall standing total to $986 billion, which is the highest level of this type of debt since the New York Fed started keeping track in 1999. This sort of debt tends to crater during economic crises, like the one we saw back in 2008, but lacking a severe recession of some kind it's likely this figure will continue to grow. And to be clear, this is debt that people are accruing on their credit cards, which almost always have significant interest rates, an average of about 20% in the U.S., though that number is higher for newer cards. So even if you don't buy anything else using your credit card, the money you've already borrowed through that card, the debt you have taken on, will continue to grow, and quickly. This sort of debt also applies to credit of the sort you might use to buy a car or make some other type of large purchase. And the failure rate on those sorts of payments has gotten so bad in the motorcycle industry that Harley-Davidson has said that there are not enough repossession agents in operation, repo men basically, to go out and repossess all the bikes from folks who have fallen behind on paying their debt. 
This is partly the consequence of a shrinking of the repo person market following the pandemic, but it's also of a kind with reports from the automobile industry that more drivers, especially folks in their 20s and 30s, are falling behind on their payments, in part because of rising interest rates that are making monthly payments, which averaged out to about $700 per month in the U.S. in 2022, but which has since ballooned to $765 per month. It's made those payments more expensive on average. The second type of debt that's worrying a lot of people in high places right now is often lumped in with other sorts of consumer debt, but has also become its own thing in many ways because of how it's calculated, the type of person who has it, and the government actions and inactions that have been aimed at it. Student debt debt that people accrue when they pay for all their higher education has become a real hot-button issue in the United States because of ever-increasing education prices and because of an attempt made by the Biden administration to forgive, to get rid of basically, up to $20,000 per person for folks who fit the criteria. That plan wasn't able to go as far as the Biden administration wanted, but more than 2 million borrowers have received about $55 billion in forgiveness under various aspects of this program so far, including debt that is waived under the limited PSLF waiver, which can wipe out a borrower's debt in its entirety in about 10 years if they devote themselves to careers in the governmental or nonprofit world. There is a chance more debt forgiveness could be impending, though a lot of that comes down to a Supreme Court decision that will determine whether a similar program that would apply to more than 30 million borrowers can go into effect. That ruling is expected to land sometime before the end of June, and in the meantime, borrowers face the end of a student loan payment pause, which has been in effect since the beginning of the pandemic, allowing folks to stop making payments each month on their student debt. That ends on June 30th. So after about three years of not having to make these payments each month, folks will either have sizable portions of their debt or their entire debt forgiven, or will have to start making payments again. It is a big shakeup either way and will substantially influence the financial destinies of tens of millions of mostly young Americans and will likely hit the economy hard either way in the immediate future as well. Shifting over to the commercial world, office building debt has accumulated into huge sums over the past few decades, and there's about $4.5 trillion worth being held by bonds, insurers, and various sorts of banks, ranging from the biggest in the world to tiny regional and community banks. The reorientation toward remote work has left many commercial office buildings vacant or near vacant, which has made paying the debt on these properties a tricky proposition. What's more, a lot of these buildings have been used as collateral, as leverage basically, to back other sorts of loans, which is not ideal for those holding said real estate collateral, as some such buildings have taken a huge valuation haircut in recent months. There's an office tower in San Francisco, for instance, that was worth about $300 million as recently as four years ago. And because of everything that has happened since, it'll probably sell for 80% less than that. Nearly a trillion dollars, about $900 billion worth of office tower and apartment building debt will come due before the end of 2024, and about 39% of that debt is held by banks, banks that have been suffering greatly from other aspects of their industry in 2023 already. And that's the fourth type of debt I'd like to talk about here, bank debt. 
banks make a lot of their revenue by borrowing money from depositors in the form of those deposits and then investing that money in interest-bearing assets. Usually they benefit from a sort of arbitrage in doing this. They take money in for the short haul and invest for the long haul. And they can do this because not everyone will take their money out all at once. So they can generally pay a bit of interest on the money they hold and earn more than that in interest from the longer term investments they make and assets they buy. That is the typical state of affairs and business model for these banks anyway. What's been happening amongst U.S. and a few international European-based banks of late has been an upending of that model, predicated in part on good old-fashioned bank-run mechanics where people panic and too many people take out too much money all at once, leaving the banks scrambling to get enough cash on hand to pay depositors their deposits, and then having to sell some of those long-term assets off before their time at a discount, losing money instead of gaining it in the process. This dynamic led to several bank collapses over the past few months, and there are some other banks that are on treacherous footing right now, in part because of the same mechanics. Too much invested in long-term assets and interest, and a lack of trust from depositors that is leading more people and businesses to pull their money from smaller banks, which seem less stable right now, so they can put it in bigger banks, which seem perceptually more secure, and probably able to cover all of their deposits should they need to do so. The second to last type of debt I'd like to talk about today is what's sometimes called frontier market debt, which is a fancy way of saying debt in markets that are still developing and less fleshed out than markets in the wealthy world. So these are not markets in the poorest countries, but they are not North America or the EU either. These markets are often appealing to some types of investor because there's more risk but also a lot more potential for reward. And it's possible to step in if you have the proper resources and kind of carve out a pseudo-monopoly for yourself. Variations of this have been a real issue throughout history, but it can sometimes be a mutually beneficial set of arrangements too, as injections of foreign funds at the right time can help stable and stabilizing economies that fit into this category grow a lot faster and build a lot more infrastructure in a short period of time, allowing for more rapid development of all kinds than would have otherwise been possible. The head of the Africa Department of the IMF recently called for a substantial hike in international support for countries within his jurisdiction to help them cope with a funding squeeze that has led to several prominent debt defaults on the continent over the past handful of years, and which looks likely to cause several more in the near future if something doesn't change. Among those who defaulted on their foreign debts already are Zambia and Ghana, and Egypt and Tunisia are thought to be on the brink of the same. These debts are the consequence of normal development and spending over the course of the pandemic, but also a wild amount of borrowing from international debt markets since 2020, much of that debt attached to higher-than-usual borrowing costs, high rates of interest, basically. And that ties into the last type of debt that I would like to touch on here, Chinese debt. For years, China has invested in what it calls its Belt and Road Initiative, through which it loaned gobs of money and labor, in the shape of building buildings and highways and trains and such, to many countries around the world, especially throughout Asia and Africa. Those loans often went to governments that wouldn't be able to pay them back, though, at least not at the pace and interest rate initially agreed upon. That's, in some cases, led to the surrendering of infrastructure to China, but it's also led to quite a few defaults, with more on the horizon. 
China hasn't seemed to be particularly interested in coming up with restructuring agreements thus far, allowing these debtors a way out that would enable them to stay solvent as they pay over longer periods or pay overall less back. And that's part of what's causing this ongoing problem of defaults in these frontier economies. But China has its own internal debt issues as well, which have been primarily caused by what are called local government financing vehicles, which have allowed off-budget borrowing for its various regions, enabling regional governments in locally relevant ways to stoke economic activity throughout the country following the economic catastrophe of 2008. This type of borrowing became more moderated in 2014, but it still continued at a decent clip which itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, as this sort of thing does tend to allow provinces to develop and enrich themselves over time, except that the returns on the investments they have made have been about 2% lower than the cost of borrowing the money required to make those investments on average. So a lot of this debt went into projects that ended up producing less wealth than they cost to build. After about three decades of this type of regional decentralization, the Chinese government is now pulling their financial powers back inward toward the central body of decision makers in the government, and it's hoped that this will give the central government more control over the accumulation of debt and approval of projects, though it also puts that existing debt payment burden squarely on their shoulders, and at a moment in which they are suffering financially from the economic consequences of a long-term zero-COVID policy and its assorted shutdowns and limitations, and a significant real estate bubble that recently burst. Provincial governments are now being pressured to pay back their debt pronto, despite not having assets that will allow them to do this easily. And it's estimated that the aggregated total of all such provincial debt is more than $10 trillion. So this is not a minor problem that can be ameliorated quickly or swept under the rug. There is some concern, too, that defaults in poorer provinces could spread, sparking the same in wealthier provinces, and that would result in a China-wide financial crisis. And because of China's centrality to the global economy, that would also, very likely, spread the financial contagion internationally. All of which is to say there is a lot of debt in the world right now. People and entities owing money to other people and entities. And while this is not an inherently worrying thing, as debt is a natural part of the way modern economies function, miscalibrations, significant shifts in economic variables, and adjustments to non-economic variables, like global pandemics and land wars in Europe, can stress and strain and distort these debt-related structures, making them more vulnerable to upset and, in some cases, more prone to injury or collapse. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Butts, A Backstory by Heather Radke. In addition to the simply hilarious and charming book concept and the clever emoji-focused cover, this book is actually just very interesting as it looks at the cultural significance of butts, and women's butts in particular, and how they are criticized and objectified and fetishized, the various cultural associations with them, and how those cultural associations play out in all sorts of appreciative and diminishing ways over the course of history. 
and it gets into our personal relationships with this part of our body, but also what this part of our body has come to symbolize and represent in many ways, and the way it has been utilized and appropriated over the years, and it's done in an often quite funny but also whip-smart non-fiction with a bunch of interesting narratives running through it manner. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Butts, A Backstory by Heather Radke. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, at onesentencenews.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.